0: Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. This is a a major hinge passage in the book of Acts. So basically, we've been in part 1 of Acts, and then this chapter transitions to part 2 of Acts. So basically, up until this point, the gospel has been going out in Jerusalem and the immediately surrounding regions. So in other words, it's been affecting mostly Israelites and, uh, and then um, Samaritans, and that's been about it. But that's, those aren't the only groups that Jesus talked about the gospel being for. So this is back in chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus gives a mission to his apostles initially, and he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. That's what's been happening for the first 12 chapters. And to the end of the earth. So Jesus has always talked about the plan is for the gospel to go past the Jewish nation to go outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, outside of Samaria, and to go to the ends of the earth, to spread and go everywhere. Well, this chapter is where the gospel is about to be sent out into the world of, of non-Jews in particular, and it's going to go by way of the Apostle Paul, who at this point is still being called Saul, his, his name initially, and it's going to go out by by way of Paul and by his associates in ministry. So, Remember what the Lord says back when he converts Saul, when he brings Saul to himself. This is chapter 9, verse 15. The Lord says, Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So the mission of Christ, it's about to advance. And and along with this advancing mission comes more structure and and more planning where the Holy Spirit is actually sending out particular missionaries for the purpose of, of preaching the gospel and planting churches. So that's Acts chapter 13, this first part in particular. So hear the word of the Lord, Acts 13, verses 1 through 12. Now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, "'Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them.' Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent off by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Or he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, "'You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, "'full of all deceit and villainy, "'will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord?' And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So the mission the mission's going out. The mission is advancing here in Acts with, with Paul's first missionary journey. And the Lord has at least four bits of instruction for us about the, the mission of Christ and the mission of the gospel. And this is the way we'll look at this passage. So, so the first thing we're told to do is praise God that he equips his church for the mission. So the mission of the gospel going out. Praise God he, he equips his church for that mission. Second, be hungry for the mission. Third, rely on the Bible to accomplish the mission. And finally, get angry when people interfere with the mission. So we'll look back here at the beginning of our passage in, in verse 1. And again, we're talking about the, the mission that Jesus has given to the church back in, in Acts 1. And it's an intense mission when you think about it. I mean, when he says to these people, so the idea is for you guys to take the gospel into Jerusalem and Judea and then past Judea into the non-Jewish world. Um, well, well, that's a lot. So, so how does the church not get completely overwhelmed with that directive? It's not sort of a bite-sized thing that they're told to do. It's this major thing. How do, they, how do they not get overwhelmed? How do we not get overwhelmed with that mission? The reason we don't have to get overwhelmed is because we can trust that God always equips his church for the mission. God always equips his church for the mission. So before Paul's missionary journey starts, look at what's happening. Verse 1. Now, there were in the church at, uh, the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Right off the bat, we should notice the diversity among these leaders in the church, which would just signal the diversity in in the body at large. So two of these men, Niger and Lucius, were from North Africa. And you've got this guy, Manaen who had grown up with Herod and was around royalty for most of his life, which would sort of be a different thing. And then you've got Saul, who was an ethnic Jew, as much of an ethnic Jew as you could find, somebody who, who had been trained as a Pharisee. So this group would not have naturally hung out together in the first century. And none of them would have, right? But the gospel is bigger and more powerful than those supernatural differences. Superficial, rather, not supernatural. Those superficial differences. Right? those differences in culture, those differences in color, those differences in ethnicity and in the way that they had grown up. So these guys are all part of the same church because of the gospel. Now, why, why does Luke tell us this? Paul, or Saul as he was known, was, was part of the Antioch church, and uh, he's about to be sent out on this important mission, but why do we need to know who else was part of the church, right? They're not going to really factor in. It's just Paul and Barnabas that are getting sent out, so why are we told about about these other guys. Well, it's because God is going to use these particular folks in the church to do the sending and and to be sent. Luke's reminding us God equips his church for the mission. So look again how he did it in Antioch. Verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but, but prophets are the people who God gave his word to in a supernatural way. So the word of God that you're holding there, the Bible— There was a time where God would give those kinds of words that were inerrant and perfect straight from him. He would give those two particular people prophets to then communicate to God's people. So so we're going to talk about teachers in a minute because there's teachers in this body too. But, But in the Bible, the teacher takes God's already present word. So the teacher comes to God's word that is already there and available for the people. And the teacher tries to help people understand what God's word says. The prophet is giving brand new words from God, brand new revelation to God's people. Now look at the role the prophets play in this situation. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So just like we talked about, the Holy Spirit speaks through these prophets The Holy Spirit gives these prophets this supernatural direct revelation about what the church should do in terms of God's mission for spreading the gospel. And and what the Spirit says is, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Spirit, by way of these prophets, tells the church to send Saul and Barnabas into the mission field. Now, before we get back to the first main point, we need to recognize we learned some important things about the Holy Spirit here, which, which are significant. So first of all, the Spirit is a person. That's important. The Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit isn't a force or a power or some sort of mystical thing like that, right? Where it's sort of vague. No, forces and powers don't talk like the Holy Spirit does here. So in verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, forces don't talk. Inanimate objects don't talk. Animals don't talk. No, what talks is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's self-conscious. He communicates. He has a will. He does things that are personal things, and he's dealt with in Scripture like a person. That's why in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, those two folks who hold back some of the prophets and they lie about it before giving it to the church, that's why they are said to have lied to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a person, first important thing. Second important thing, the Holy Spirit is divine. Divine. The Holy Spirit is fully God. So just like the Father is God, just like Jesus is God, the Son, the Holy Spirit is also God. So in verse 2, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Saul belong to the Holy Spirit. And and their activity, their mission is determined by, directed by the Holy Spirit. He says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the the work to which I have called them. So the one who owns all people, the one who sets the agenda for all things, including the mission of the church, that person is God, clearly. But here it's the Holy Spirit who's calling those shots. It's because the Holy Spirit is God. He's a person, but he's also God. Listen to the way we summarize the teaching of scripture in Article 2 of of our church's Confession of Faith. We say, we believe there is only one true God and that he has existed from all eternity in three equally divine persons, the Father, the Father. The Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay, but but what is God, the Holy Spirit, doing here? Well, again, He's equipping the church for the mission. So He has them set apart Saul and Barnabas, who are part of this second group in verse one. These teachers. So Saul and Barnabas, they're they're two guys that were gifted at instructing uh, instructing the church about the Bible, explaining what the Bible means. They're teachers in the church, and these are the guys who are being sent out to teach the gospel. In, in areas where the gospel hadn't taken root yet. So again, you see, the, the entire thing has been engineered by God. He put the prophets in this church so they could relay his word about who to send, and then the people that need to be sent, he put those people in the church as well. God always equips his church for the mission, and the church today works, works the same way. That's why we should be encouraged about this. Now, like we mentioned before, the office of of prophet, that was a temporary office in the church, just like the apostles. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. We're told, you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So, So the church is being built on the foundation that won't be relayed. So the foundation is Christ as the cornerstone and then his unique work through the apostles and the prophets. So so there's no longer need to equip the church with prophets, but God certainly continues to equip the church with teachers. So there's two New Testament offices that are supposed to be ongoing that churches today should have. Elders or pastors or overseers, those three titles are used interchangeably to talk about the one office, and then deacons. Those are the two offices that God intends for churches to have. One of the central defining tasks of elders is that they teach. That's why it's a requirement. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, for a man to be an elder, he has to be able to teach. You might remember, but in Acts chapter 6, one of the main reasons that deacons are instituted into the church is so the, the pastors are free to, to teach the word. So God equips the church with pastors to, to teach the Bible, to lead the congregation. But then he also equips the body with people who are gifted with non-teaching tasks, like administration certain practical hands-on tasks, planning, those sorts of things. So, in fact, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, it's interesting. If you look in the New Testament, there's several passages that will outline the list of different gifts that the Holy Spirit provides to individual Christians. A lot of those lists, actually, no two are the same. Some of them leave out something that another list has. Some of them add something. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, he sums up all the spiritual gifts into two main categories— Gifts of speaking and gifts of serving. Of course, we see those kinds of gifts. Praise God, he's, he's equipped our church with both kinds. But that's what God does. He equips the church for the mission. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. So, so when it comes to the church's internal mission of, of growing Christians into likeness. When it comes to the external mission of sending the gospel to the nations, God perfectly equips his church. He's so good to do that, right? Praise God for it. So, so God equips the church for the task. Now look at how the church in Antioch responds to this plan. Verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them off. Now fasting just means going without food, usually for they sometimes for a a period of days. So what's this about? Why is the church going without food in this situation where they're sending out Paul and Barnabas? Well, It's it's because they desperately want the gospel to go forward and be fruitful. That's why they're doing this. They want the gospel to go forward and and to be fruitful. And and this is the second piece of instruction for us this morning, which is to be hungry for the mission of God. Be hungry for the mission of God. Um, Outside of the four gospels, Acts 13 is the only place in the New Testament that mentions Fasting. So you see, fasting happen in the Old Testament. You see it mentioned in the Gospels. Outside of the Gospels, it shows up two times. It's here in in uh, in our passage in Acts chapter thirteen, but but it's mentioned it's Acts fourteen as well. I'm sorry, these two chapters. But but again, it's mentioned many times in the Old Testament. So what is it? What is fasting about in the Bible? Why do people sometimes go without food? Well, in the Old Testament, typically it's happening because the people are recognizing their sin particular ways they've sinned against the Lord and then they're fasting as a way to sort of show their repentance. That's usually what's happening in the Old Testament when they fast. This is Jonah chapter 3 verse 5. Jonah gives this message to the people. He says, "Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown." This is how they respond. And the people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So, their fasting is a way to show their repentance of sin. But but when fasting shows up in the book of Acts, that's not what's happening. So what is it the church is looking for here when they go without food? Well, they're looking for God's direction and his blessing. Those are the two things that fasting is doing or that they're looking for when they fast here in Acts chapter 13. They're looking for God's direction and they're looking for God's blessing. So in terms of God's direction, look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So this young church, they want to participate in God's mission. They want to send out missionaries to preach the gospel in in spots where there isn't any gospel preaching. They want to see people brought to Jesus, but they need direction on how to do that. They need direction on, on who to send, right? So they're praying and they're fasting in an effort to gain that direction from the Lord. So they're basically saying, Lord, how should we do this? who should we send? We don't know exactly what to do. So they fast. And of course, God provides that direction. God says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. But then the church fasts again. So it's not just about seeking direction. They fast again in verse three. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, Barnabas and Saul, and they sent them off. So what are they doing there? Well, they're preparing these men as they send them out. What they're doing is is they're asking for God's blessing. So they're looking for direction with that first fast. God, how should we do this? And then they're looking for God to bless the mission. And so they're fasting a second time for that. It's the same sort of thing we see over in chapter 14, verse 23. Look over there, a page over. And when they had appointed uh, appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the idea is is that the church is fasting for the Lord to, to bless this particular ministry. That's why they're fasting this second time. They're seeking God's blessing on the mission that they're sending Saul and Barnabas out for. So again, they fast for direction, and they fast for blessing. Now the question is, okay, well, how does that work? Why? How does going without food connect us with asking God's blessing and asking his direction. In other words, why fast? Well, it's because fasting, what it does is it brings your physical situation in line with your spiritual situation. That's what fasting does. It brings your physical situation in line with your spiritual situation. So the church in our passage, they understood they needed God's help, not only his help with direction, but, but also his help of blessing with this ministry. So spiritually, they knew they were in need. Well, you know, but going without food for a time puts your body in a place of need. In fact, I mean, if you've missed a meal lately, then you know your body reminds you of that. Your body lets you know, I'm in need. I need this particular thing. Well, fasting, it brings your physical state in line with your spiritual state. It it makes you physically needy the way that you are spiritually needy. And and this is a practice that that as a church, we'll utilize moving forward. So in particular, when there's a new ministry, that we're wondering if if the Lord would be pleased and glorified if we started, or when we install new officers, new elders and deacons, this is a practice that we'll start commending to the church, that we could fast, and that we could seek the Lord's direction and and his blessing, the same way that these young believers do it here in, in Acts chapter 13. So a rewording of of the third main point. This sort of helps us get at it more in a general way. So that's one application. I was a church. We'll we'll start to do that. But there's another application for us. There's another question for you to ask yourself. And and it's just a rewording of our third main point, which is, are you hungry for the mission of God? Always a good question to ask as a Christian. Are you hungry for the mission of God? So the mission of God, saving non-Christians and then growing up new Christians more and more into the likeness of, of Jesus which is the way, by the way, that Paul sums up the mission of the church, at least what's supposed to be happening to us as Christians. This is Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. Paul says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. So that mission of bringing non-Christians to Christ, seeing them be saved, and then the mission of us looking more like Jesus along the way, becoming more and more Christ-like. So are, are you hungry for that mission? Do you want that thing to happen? So these young Christians in our passage, they want God's direction and blessing for that ministry more than they want food. So they're willing to go without food in order to get that direction and that blessing from the Lord. So are we hungry in that same way? And, And to just use that example in our passage, how did your heart respond to that potential call to fast? So when I said, oh, yeah, moving forward, our church is going to commend this practice. How would your heart respond to it? Were you thinking, ooh, really? Were you thinking through like, well, with my job, I mean, I don't know if I should fast. That might be unwise, right? I've had this medical thing 10 years ago, and maybe it, it wouldn't be a good idea. It's, it's good to think about that. We, we normally think about our commitment to the Lord with big examples. Would I be willing to die for the gospel? If somebody walks in the restaurant and they say, okay, I'm going to kill you. If, if you say that you're a Christian, what would I do? But, but sometimes it's, it's good, maybe the majority of the time, it's, it's good to think about the smaller examples, things that are actually more likely. Would I choose a cheeseburger over the Lord? <laughs> you know? It's a good question. It's a good question. I'm a pastor, and I'll tell you that there are times where something will be going hard in ministry, and the way that I try to sort of quell that pain and calm myself, I, insta- I don't go to the Lord instantly. I think about what we're going to have for supper that night. And I think, oh, okay, there's some comfort. I'm going to eat this thing. Well, that sounds so sad, doesn't it? Maybe nobody else does that. That's a good question to ask, right? You can, you can sub in anything. Food might not be something where you're particularly tempted to really draw comfort from that thing. But, of course, there are other things that you could sub in. Am I more hungry for the Lord than for that thing? But in this example, is is my hunger for gospel work so meager that I'm not really willing to give up food for a day? That's a good a good question to ask. We, we've all had situations where we were working on a project or something needed to get done, and so we went without food. So uh, two of our kids, we put a bunk bed in their room, so I had to put together that bunk bed. I didn't even think about supper after church. I got home and I'm putting together that bunk bed, and then afterwards I think, oh, you know what? I, I'm hungry. I should figure out something for supper. We all know what that's like, right, to, to press through in that way because of the significance of the thing we're doing. Of course, we, we all do that from time to time with a house project or for our job or for our kids. But are we willing to do that for the mission of God? Are we hungry for, for the mission in, in that way? And, and again, it's not so much about the food or that particular practice of fasting. It's really about our hearts. You know, what, what are we hungry for? Well, the Lord wants us to be hungry for the mission. Jesus uses the same kind of language. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So does your desire for the Lord, does it exceed your desire for, for food, exceed your desire for these other things? But, but here's, here's the good news. Those are good questions to think about, and that might kind of pierce your heart the way it does mine, and that's good. But here's the good news. The good news is that the satisfaction the Lord brings the satisfaction that participating in the work of the Lord brings, that satisfaction is much better than the satisfaction of food. Praise the Lord for it. So so in other words, when these Christians went without food, the Lord wasn't holding anything back from them. No, he was giving them something that was much better, which is always the way the Lord works, right? All of his commands are blessings. Every single one of them. He wasn't holding something back. He, he was giving them something better. They, they were actually coming out on top. Because of the benefit of their physical state being brought in line with their spiritual state of, of need. They benefited from going without food more than they would have had they had food. There are certain kinds of junk food that I eat a lot before getting married. And in the Lord's kindness, uh, the Lord kind of put some ditches and some rails on the side of what I eat. Because Maria thoughtful about those things and praise the Lord for it. I'm sure it's a, it's a good thing. And what I have found, and I never thought this would be me, but every now and then, you know, in the grocery store, I'll get a hostess cream-filled cupcake um, or something along those lines. And what I've found is some of those types of food, when I eat them now, they don't taste as good as they used to taste. Right? There's times where I'll eat something and I will think to myself, and this is me talking, right? I mean, I'm so thankful for junk food. But there's times I will eat those things and I will I will think, I can taste the fakeness here. I can taste the, I don't know, I guess it's a preservative maybe. Whatever the thing is, it doesn't taste natural. That thing I'm tasting, I don't think it grew on a tree and the Lord <laughs> intends for me to, to eat that thing. right? As, as you start to taste the things of the Lord, you start to realize, oh, you don't, you don't have as much of a taste for those other things. Those things that are more thin, that are more fake, that aren't lasting, the things that the world oftentimes offers to us. Well, for your heart, real food is participating in the work of the Lord. This is how Jesus says it. This is John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's a good reminder. Being a part of God's mission, it will satisfy you far more than anything that this world has to offer, food or anything else. So serving a fellow member by caring for them physically or, or by encouraging them in their walk with Christ, that will be a satisfying thing for you as a Christian. Giving your resources to the church to support, uh, support the local ministry and to support international ministry, the, the way that we support Harshit Singh and these believers in India, when you give your money to that, that's a satisfying thing. Gathering together with your brothers and sisters on Sunday mornings or in small groups or one-on-one, that, that's a satisfying thing. Sharing the gospel with a non-Christian coworker, a satisfying thing that's a good thing to pray for right pray that you'd be hungry for the mission the same way that that we're hungry for for food while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting the Holy Spirit said set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them then after fasting and praying they laid their hands on them and sent them off so be hungry for the mission Well, well the Antioch church they were probably feeling pretty good here they did their part they recognized Barnabas and Saul they sent them off but but how are these two guys feeling at this point, right? So the church is sort of like, oh, we did it. We sent them off. They're the ones that are going out. But you can put yourself in the shoes of Barnabas and Saul. They're going out to preach the gospel to a culture that's pretty hostile against the gospel, that has jailed people in the past, even in the Jewish nation. And now they're going out outside the Jewish nation, right, where, where they're sort of aliens even more and have an alienating message. So so how is it that they're not terrified to do that, to take the mission forward? Well, it's because they knew that the success of the mission wasn't dependent on them and their abilities. The the success of the mission, it it wasn't even dependent on the willingness of the people that they would be preaching to. No, they knew ultimately that it was the word of God that was going to have to do the the heavy lifting. And this is our third point this morning. Rely on the Bible to accomplish the mission. Rely on the Bible to accomplish the mission. Look at the first thing Paul and Barnabas do when they get to their destination. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. It's the first thing they do. So they aren't going door to door and polling people about, hey, what kind of a church would you come to? What, what kind of a church would you like? They aren't joining the local sports league and trying to get to know people, to try to win people over with like their good personalities maybe. They aren't doing any of that. No, they find a spot where people are willing to listen to teaching, which was the Jewish synagogue, and they start proclaiming the word of God. And the reason they do that is simple. In ministry, the power is found in the word of God. The power is found in the proclamation of the Bible. It's what we saw a few weeks ago. Herod ends up dead, but the word of God, we're told, continued to increase and multiply That's why in Paul's ministry, he never worried about coming up with the wisest sounding arguments or or being really rhetorically polished. No, in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul preached the simple word of God. That's what we see him and Barnabas doing here. So they go and, and they just start preaching. And God provides fruit through the means of his word being preached. Look at what happens to this important official in this city. Verse 12 Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Interestingly enough, we know from ancient inscriptions in Cyprus that people have found when they've done archaeological digs. This guy, Sergius Paulus, not only did he become a Christian, but the rest of his family became Christians. So there's inscriptions about how he was one of the earliest Christians in this city. But see, that, that shouldn't be surprising, right? That's what the Bible does. The Bible always accomplishes God's mission. And we know that a hefty part of that mission is bringing non-Christians to Christ. And, and since God wanted to save this guy, his word saved him. So the point for us is simple. Rely on the Bible to accomplish the mission. So when, when you're tempted maybe to, to think that our church needs more flash, you know, something to, to draw people in, or that we should jump on board with, with the latest trend in church marketing, there's always new trends in, in church marketing, Remember that we're supposed to rely on the Bible to accomplish the mission. When, when you're tempted to think that, that an area of sin in your life is insurmountable, God, I will never get past this thing. I will never see improvement here. Rely on the Bible to accomplish the mission. When, when you're tempted to think a fellow Christian will, will never, ever change, rely on the Bible to accomplish the mission. When you're tempted to think that that in order for your non-Christian coworker or neighbor to come to Christ, then you have to have your life really cleaned up and have a very appealing life to sort of put out in front of them. Rely on the Bible to accomplish the mission. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God. But but it's not that everything goes off without a hitch for Paul and Barnabas in ministry here in Cyprus. As oftentimes happens, as Jesus told us to expect – there's, uh, there's persecution. They meet some opposition. Verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So this guy who ends up becoming a Christian, Sergius Paulus, this high-ranking official, he wants to hear the gospel. That's a good thing to pray for, right? Pray that the non-Christians around you want to hear the gospel. Always best-case scenario. Just like the Ethiopian eunuch where, uh, where Philip's walking along and a guy's reading Isaiah. And he's like, hey, do you know what this means? Good thing to pray for, right? Best-case scenario. That's what happens here. Sergius Paulus finds Paul and Barnabas. He wants to hear the word of God. But the problem is one of his advisors this guy, Bar-Jesus, who's also called Elymas, he's, he's supposedly this wise kind of spiritual advisor who people thought had supernatural capabilities, whether he did or not. But, but the most significant thing about this guy is he, he was self-consciously and actively opposed to the gospel. So he's trying to keep his boss away from the word of God. He's trying to keep him away from the gospel. Look again at how clear Luke makes this. Verse 8. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, Saul and Barnabas, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So he's actually trying to keep his boss from becoming a Christian. That's that's what he's trying to do. And there is nothing worse you can do to a person. It's it's the worst crime, really, if you think about it, that, that can be committed. So just think to sort of you can hear that and think, yeah, I can sign off on that in my head, the worst crime. But I don't know if it really feels that way. Well, well, think about this. Think of another example. Think about if somebody you loved was terminally ill. And let's say there is this one medication that can heal them, preserve their physical life. And that medication has been put in the mail and it's coming to them in the next few days. But let's say that somebody who works for them, maybe a housekeeper, that person, their goal is to intercept that medication in the mailbox and throw it away before it can get to that person so that they will end up dying because that person intercepted that medicine well that would make us furious right absolutely furious blind with rage that's what this magician is seeking to do the the only difference is his interference isn't putting Sergius's temporary earthly life at risk it's putting his eternal life at risk so it's ratcheted up from that example that that we just thought about don't forget what jesus teaches us jesus says do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell and see this is our final point this morning get angry when people interfere with the mission get angry when people interfere with the mission this man, Elimos, he's working to keep his boss away from the gospel. He's, he's trying to persuade him to reject Jesus, which we know would would result in a, eternal punishment away from God. And by the way, that's that's what's at stake here. That's what's at stake when it comes to the gospel. You you may be here and not be a Christian or not know what you think about Jesus, and you might think about Christianity as maybe a nice addition to help with ethics. Like, yeah, the, the good thing about the church, the, the benefit of Christianity is it helps you live your life a little bit better. It has this ethical value. But see, the stakes are really much higher than that. So when, when, what the Bible teaches is, is that the chief benefit of trusting in Christ is to have the guilt of your sins wiped away in God's eyes. And the reason that's so important is because all of us, each individual, will have to stand before the Lord one day and give an account for our sin. And there is a lot of it. Each of us has has tallied a whole lot of sin in our life. You're only going to tally more. I'm only going to tally more. But see, there's only two options for what happens with that sin. It has to be punished. Either you can hand that sin to Christ by trusting in him alone for your salvation and let him pay for it on the cross where it's all wiped clean. That's what Christians have done. Or you can hold on to it and deal with it yourself, which means that you're going to have to pay for it at the hand of the Lord for all eternity. The stakes could not be higher. That The gospel is the difference between heaven and hell. So talk to me or another member of our church, if you're here and you don't know what you think about Christ, and you understand, I need to think about this more. I, I need to come to Christ. I at least need to consider that. So see, e- Elymas, he's actively opposing the gospel message. He's trying to keep Sergius from believing it. Look at Paul's reaction, verse 9. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? So Paul gets angry, right? He's pretty intense here. But but again, given what we just talked about, the language makes sense. This magician is attempting to, to hurt someone in the most consequential way you can which is by keeping them from Jesus, who's our only hope. And so Paul lets him have it. So, so first of all, he, he makes it clear whose agenda Elie is, is really working for. And there's actually a play on words here. This guy's other name is Bar-Jesus. You might hear that and think, what a weird name. Bar just means son of. So, so uh, Simon Bar-Jonah, you might remember that, Simon, son of Jonah. Bar Jesus, son of Jesus. Now, now this guy, he, he seems to have taken on this name. We don't know if that's because he knew Jesus was popular with a sect of society, and so he was sort of trying to build on that popularity. We don't know if it was just coincidence. But, but Paul's pointing out he's not really a son of Jesus. He's really a son of the devil. Looks like there's that play on words that's, that's happening here. He, he goes on to say that he's full of deceit and villainy. This is a good reminder. So there's no way to innocently oppose the gospel. You can't do it. If you are opposing the gospel, you're involved in deceit and villainy. No matter what somebody thinks they're doing, if they're opposing the gospel, they're involved in deceit and villainy. Opposition to the gospel comes from a heart that's opposed to God. So Paul says to him, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? So it looks like there what he's saying is God God had laid out this path for sinful people by which they can be saved. It's the path of Christ. But this magician comes along, and he's making that path crooked. And what he's really doing is he's turning that path toward hell. That's what he's doing. Even if he doesn't realize it, that's what he's doing. It's like Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, meaning a convert, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So he's saying you're, you're twisting the path. You're leading people to judgment. Look at the final thing Paul has to say to him. Verse 11. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So this man is judged because of his opposition to, uh, to the gospel. And it's opposition to the gospel, especially because it it can affect this sinner who needs Jesus. And that's a horrible crime. That's why Paul gets so upset about it. In fact, if you look through the New Testament, Jesus' harshest words, and Paul and the other writers of the New Testament epistles, their harshest words are reserved for people that are opposing the gospel actively, that are trying to keep sinners away from Christ, That's why Jesus turns over the tables in the temple. There is a kind of righteous anger, right? Jesus never sinned, and yet he dumps over tables. It's because he's angry about the way the Jewish nation had set up the synagogue in such a way that wasn't connecting them to the Lord. It was keeping them away from the Lord. That's why in Galatians, Paul says he wishes the false teachers that were fiddling with the gospel, he says he wishes they would emasculate themselves. You can go look up what that word means this afternoon if you don't remember now. The, the harshest language in the New Testament is for those who interfere with the mission of the gospel. So as we close, does that make you angry? We all know, okay, what makes me angry? You've, you've got sort of a bar that you can compare things to. Does this make you angry? Does interference with the mission of the gospel make you angry? So, so when a government or when government officials try and limit the Christian's ability to live according to the Bible— Or to preach the gospel, does that make you angry? Or do you just sort of overlook it? Ah, it's not a big deal. It should make us angry, right? Or another example, when when so-called churches teach a false gospel of salvation by works. So they might say, of course you've got to trust in Christ, but that's only part of what makes you God's child. That's only part of what justifies you in God's eyes. You also have to do these particular things aside from faith in Christ, which of course leads to people in those churches thinking they're saved, thinking they're believing the one true gospel when they aren't believing the one true gospel and they aren't saved. They're on their way to hell unless they believe the one true gospel. And that's because that false gospel is being propagated by their church leaders. Does that make you angry? When when fake churches worship an idol, by saying Jesus isn't fully God, and they dishonor Christ in that way, making it seem like Jesus is just like us, just a better version, right? Does, does that make you angry? People in, in groups like that, they're seeking to turn people away from the one true saving gospel. Like Jesus says in Matthew 23, they're making converts who are children of hell. So tell me, what's, what's worthy of anger more than that? Nothing. Nothing, right? A great thing about people like us, about sweet, sort of middle-class American people. We're good at being nice. Praise the Lord. There's a lot of gospel fruit in that, right? So many situations where love of others entails being kind, charitable, patient. But there's a category of thing that is supposed to make us angry, right? We know what it feels like to get angry about certain things. This thing should make you angrier than those other things. When somebody interferes with the mission of the gospel, it makes Christ angry. It should make us angry. So, so what should we do with that anger? Well, pray the Lord would get rid of that interference, right? Pray he would get rid of that interference. There was, there was a fake church that was on the corner of the street that we lived on in our first apartment, and it had bells, and those bells would go off. And every – you don't have to do this. I'm not – I'm just – okay, think creatively. When I would hear those bells, I would pray that church would close because they were week in, week out, day in, day out, preaching a damnable gospel that would lead people to hell if the people trusted those leaders and believed what they were saying. So we can pray that the Lord would get rid of that kind of interference. He, he most likely won't do it by making the propagators blind the way that he does here right he certainly can do that but but he might he might make those false churches dwindle in in membership and have to close their doors or then they can't preach that false gospel at least not in that neighborhood or or they could the the lord could do work with with politicians in certain ways he could transfer that aggressive non-christian who's in your department at work that's trying to keep people away from the gospel pray pray that somehow god would prevent that interference We're told here, immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So God neutralizes that resistance. God can do that. We should pray he would. So Sometimes it's appropriate to tell that opponent of the gospel the sorts of things Paul says to this magician. Hey, whether you realize it or not, you're fiddling with the mission of God here. You're trying to keep people away from Christ, who's their only hope. You say it's sort of the way Paul says in verse 10, stop making crooked. The straight paths of the Lord. So out of love for sinners who who need to be saved, get angry when people interfere with the the mission of Christ, the message of the gospel. But our passage, it doesn't end on this note of judgment. It ends on a note of salvation. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So seeing Acts, the word of the gospel continues to go forward. And and to fight sinful interference, it saves this man. As much as the enemies of the gospel keep trying to squish it and squelch it and sideline it, they they can't prevent it. It continues to grow and multiply. And this room is is proof of that. The gospel that went into the non-Jewish world 2,000 years ago made it here. And those of us who are Christians, it's because the gospel couldn't be stopped. And it saved us too. We've been astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The gospel message is astonishing.